Welcome to episode 67 of Talking Gary. With Niwa's prediction of an El Nino weather pattern and a high likelihood of a drier summer, how are farmers preparing? In today's episode, we're talking to dairy farmer Trevor Hamilton, who has dairy farm operations across the North and South Islands, and Kevin McKinley, Dairy NZ regional partner in the Bay of Plenty. Trevor and Kevin will share their strategies for preparing for a dry summer, including how to manage cow condition and pasture quality. Today's host is Dairy NZ's Jack McGowan. Kia ora, Trevor and Kevin. Thanks for giving us your time to speak with us today. This is an important topic, weather conditions. Of course, we aren't in drought yet, but uh, many farmers will be keeping their eye on it as they're making critical decisions for their farms for the season ahead. So before we get into it, Trevor, I've only farmed in the North Island and I know very little about you. Where do you farm? Uh, we farm in three regions, Canterbury. So we have three large dairy farms down there in a support block. And in the central plateau, we have two large dairy farms and a large support block that supports the North Island. And in the Hawke's Bay, we have a singular dairy farm now, which is our largest farm. So about 7,000 cows all up, about 3 million milks on it. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. And um, Kevin, what drew you to um, working with farmers at Dairy NZ? I like to tell people, Jack, that I get out of bed every day to help dairy farmers be better dairy farmers. And so that's what actually gets me out of bed. Just that just that challenge of helping other people achieve their goals. I just find that very fulfilling. Okay, so Trevor, you said you manage a number of farms across the North and South Islands. Each of them will have their own challenges when it comes to climate and the summer season. Niwa is forecasting a drier than usual summer. So can you tell us a bit about what's front of mind for you in terms of the challenges you'll be preparing for on farm? Yes, Jack. Well, firstly, understanding a forecast is a forecast and a forecast is only a forecast. What I don't want to have is the forecast out of Niwa um, freak every dairy farmer in the North Island or in some places in the South Island, which are irrigated, to say there's definitely going to be a drought or there's definitely going to be a large dry spell. There may be. There may not be, but what really matters is what risk mitigations you have in place to counteract that dry spell. That's it for us. So what do we have in place? What have we learned in the past and what strategies do we intend to put in place? And uh, what are some of the regional differences that you need to factor into your planning for the various farms? Oh, we have massive regional differences because Canterbury farms are fully irrigated, including the support block. And so they're on Central Plains water. And so, you know, they get between four and a half and five mils a day ordered if required. So in case of the dairy farms down there, we simply have to produce, we have to push those farms along and do 1,900, 2,000 solids a hectare to justify the water. We don't have that same radar on the business. And as I said, probably about 45% of our production comes out of that. So we don't have the same radar on that in case of a drought as we do with the North Island farm. So it's a completely different ball game in the South Island around that one. So in the South Island, we can almost, um, we run four cows a hectare across the business. So we can almost go in the South Island, four cows a hectare, 450 solids a cow, and that's our budget. And we, we hit it year on year because we've got water. Uh, there's variables within that, 
but we aim to fully feed cows all of the time. So we're in North Island. We do have a drought strategy and we've worked on that for some time. So in the North Island, we have two large farms. All our farms are large, so our average farm size is 1,100 cows or close to half a million milk solids, and they are fully supported by either lease or owned runoffs. Does that help you with your drought planning, having those runoffs? It certainly does because um, we currently have over a tonne of cow, probably, on average probably about 1.2 tonne of cow already stacked up. Some of that infantry from last year, that's a lot of feed stacked up in case of uh, drought conditions. So, you know, that would allow us to go for 125, 140-day drought without actually getting into winter feed stock. So it's a strategy we put in some time ago because we wanted to get and we do want to get right across the business a legacy where we're fully self-contained in terms of our uh, young stock grazing feed, etc. So we're not exposed at the market to the degree we might otherwise be, but it's been a very deliberate strategy. In the case of the Hawke's Bay farm, Hawke's Bay farms are a little bit more prone to dry, but not necessarily greater than the central plateau farms, but it can be. There we own as part of the farm 110 hectare runoff and lease another one that supplies feedback. But where we've really got our infantry up was last year in the North Island with the amount of rain we had, we had four cuts of silage. And so we deliberately went out to grow as much grass as we could because obviously the runoff area, unlike the dairy farm area, doesn't have the nitrogen restrictions because we're cropping it. So I'm just wondering, Trevor, having the runoffs is a huge part of your risk strategy and you've worked on that over time and and built that and, and now know what you sort of need to do that. What was your strategy before that? Well, we've had runoffs for quite a long time. I mean, these are long-term lease and ownership runoffs that probably stem back, I'd say, 15 years or more, some of them. Uh, Most of the central plateau runoffs we've had in play for, I'd say, a good 15 years, even the lease, so the long-term leases but they're almost an integral part of our business. So if they ever come on the market, we'd seek to buy them for security reasons. So part of that was drought mitigation and putting feed in. The other part was um, growing young stock, weighing young stock, and managing young stock to get target weights, which is also a bit of a problem in the industry in terms of external grazing sometimes. And if a drought situation comes, we can therefore put supplements into young stock to keep those growth rates up, whereas external grazers are not so keen to do that, particularly they're not so keen to buy PK. Kevin, you're a regional partner in the Bay of Plenty. Do you hear similar things about sort of that risk mitigation and planning for potential drought? There's probably less people have got the silage from the runoff coming in, Jack, and so it's a real strength of Trevor's operation that they have that. I kind of wonder what would that number, that 1,200 kgs of dry matter per cow, what would that be in a sort of a normal standard year if you haven't had the carryover from last season? Probably between 900 kilograms of dry matter in a tonne of cow. Yeah, so it's still a significant amount. Yeah, and we aim to feed about 900 kilograms of cow. So we are stocked, as I say, up around four cows a hectare. In fact, one of our central plateau farms is 4.2 cows a hectare. So we have to grow 70 a day to feed those. And so we can do that in the peak and sometimes grow 100. But we're not going to do that for the whole year. 
But even that farm at 4.3 cows a hectare has made one lot of silage at 70 hectares and another lot at 40 hectares. So it's actually clipped 120 hectares of silage. So it just shows us that we've got growth rates up there sometimes of, you know, well above 70 and up towards 100 to be able to do that. Cool. I just wonder, Trevor, a very hypothetical question. If you didn't have the runoff for sourcing that silage, what would your strategy be? Would you still be aiming on that ton per cow? And how would you do that? Uh, how would we do that is if we were, and we have been in the past years ago in that position, that we would know exactly how many kilograms of dry matter we had as silage. We would play the palm kernel game as much as we could while we have pasture. So we understand that we can feed if necessary, we can feed up to even 10 or 11 kilograms of PK if we've got pasture or if we've got silage. In a scenario where you don't have a runoff, whatever silage it is, that's your most limiting commodity because you can't go and buy more of that in the middle of a drought unless you're prepared to pay astronomical prices for it. So the moment a dry starts to really bite in, we limit that and up the PK as much as we can. And part of the other side of the business is Everything's about risk mitigation for us. So we have four processes. So one of those farms supplies Miraka in the North Island and two supply Fonterra, which does have a FEI thing, test. But it's limiting the amount of silage to make it last for 100, 125 days and see if you can manage with PK and with what pastures you've got. The other thing is to be on a long rotation probably from about uh, mid-December onwards, go on to at least a 30-day, if it looks like getting dry, because we do 10 daily pasture walks, so we monitor every 10 days, and we graph that. If we see those growth rates slipping down, and we see our average pasture cover slipping, we simply would extend round, so we'd go out to a 40. But we don't go out to a 40-day round as a deliberate strategy at the start, because you do get quality problems. The other factor is if you are grazing down to 1,500 all the time, which is our mode of operandi, then you really haven't got dead matter in the bottom of the pasture that is going to sacrifice production when you do push the cows into the bottom. So we don't have that scenario because we're very, very strict about the residuals that we leave and both post and pre-grazing are very strict around the 10-day data with all managers. So all our farms are salary managed and then we have operations managers sits above them in the North and South Island. That's how we manage them. So it sounds like you've got a really clear process each season for both setting up for summer and mitigating any potential risk from drought. Kevin, I'd love to hear from you. How important is it to prepare early for potential drought? In our part of the world here and on the central plateau and the coastal bay, plenty, a lot of farmers actually have a plan for a dry summer most years. So a lot of farmers actually know roughly what they're going to need in a normal summer. The challenge is when we get uh, an extended dry period. And this year, I guess I've seen people purchasing more silage, using nitrogen to make more silage. And fortunately, we've had a, a spring where people have actually grown more silage. Uh, and a few people are using um, summer crops, a bit more summer crops maybe this year. So I, I do see a lot of people doing it, but Trevor is probably planning a little bit more than I see on a lot of other properties with his um, monitoring of that data, knowing exactly how much silage he's got available for the winter and the summer, and knowing sort of how the length of that dry spell. 
Trevor, you mentioned that you have salaried managers. How do you make sure everyone's on board with, you know, that sort of monitoring against the plan and make course corrections with them? One thing that I've noticed in the past, and I know Kevin was involved in a, in a pretty serious one and 70 year drought we had in the Central Plateau some years ago. The main thing I found out is um, you need to protect staff. And by that, I mean they get to lock cows away every day and look at brown paddocks and no grass. But you need to protect them from the outset by saying, we've got the strategy, this is what we're going to implement, and if you implement that strategy, you can feel really good about closing the gate behind them every day because in TH Enterprises, we're going to feed cows. So one is to protect the staff, first and foremost. Two is to protect the revenue. We have done a risk matrix at board level. We have formal governance. And in that risk matrix is the fact that milk price, which I can't control, but revenue I can. And hitting that budget of production is sacrosanct for us in protecting the revenue line. So it's the number one risk for us. Where you lose massive amounts of revenue in a dry is if you carry on, decrease your production, probably underfeed cows a little bit, strip condition off, and then decide to dry off at middle or end of March. Then the rain comes early April or end of March, you've got no cows in milk. You've got zero production for April and May. That is massive. In a scale business, that is massive. We don't want to go there. So a few years ago, we had a pretty serious dry in the Hawke's Bay. When we had all the pasture covers down around 1,500, because the other thing you don't want to do, you don't want to overgraze pastures. So ryegrass has got a crown. All pastures, once you eat below that and right into the root level, you start to um, lose plant life. And so as soon as the pastures, so we aim to supplement cows to leave pastures at 1,500. When the whole farm looks like 1,500, then there's no point in chasing the cows to the back of the farm or anywhere else. So what we did is we had four paddocks which rotated those two herds in and we fully fed them all of their diet and supplements and left the farm come away. Now, in those sacrifice paddocks, we do have to re-sow those, but by doing that and understanding what the cow's production is and understanding how we're going to do that in terms of a ratio between silage and farm kernel, it gives us the ability to just carry on milking, albeit they're living fully on supplements. And while it might be costing a bit during that period, you've got to understand that a dry cow is also going to cost you 10 kilograms, so it's really only the difference between 10 kilograms of dry matter a day and probably 14 to 16 is to keep these cows in milk so that when it does rain, you've got the cows there. Now, on that experiment we did, we went to 16 hours milking because, once again, we want to protect the revenue line. And on the basis of that, it didn't rain till well into April, like the middle towards the end of April, and we had cows uh, in condition still in milk that carried on to the end of May. The other thing is we always had a strategy to milk to the end of May. And by fully feeding cows, the supplementation, we find we don't have a large group of cows that are actually dropping below condition score four. But these cows had really good condition and um, we just carried on. So if we were to get a serious drought again, from my experiences, which is 
you know, it's a long time, I'd go to that same scenario. So it sounds like you're balancing all the time body condition score and pasture and using the supplement to maintain that balance. Talk to me more about your body condition score kind of strategy, like what you're aiming to dry off at and, and carve at. Because we're fully feeding these cows, we don't see a lot of cows dropping below a four, particularly if they're not walking. We have a saying that if there's any cows at the beginning of April that are below a four, we're happy to dry them off, particularly condition score three cows if there's any, which is normally hardly any. And then we get to the middle of April and condition score three and a half cows. If we get to the beginning of May, then we'd say any cows under a four. But why we don't play massive weight on that is a condition score will still only produce between 13 to 15 milk solids. But if we don't have that cow in milk for two months, at 1.2 milk solids even, then how are we going to pick up uh, 70 milk solids a cow? By one condition score? No, we're not. But having said that, if we dry cows off at the end of May and you know we'd like to think they're, say, 4.2, four to four point two, we know we have a strategy to feed fourteen kgs over the winter. So we know we can put that condition score on. So it's how you're going to feed them over the winter. So this is all planning. So right today as I sit in the North Island, we have a spreadsheet with every kilogram of dry matter and silage we've got on every block. We know we've got whatever on each block, we know we need so much for wintering. We know we can use so much for lactation. And so Knowing where you are is a big thing. I think failing to plan is a real risk. Just thinking that through, Trevor, the keeping cows milking through the dry so they're still there at the other end is a key part of your system and a lot of other people's systems, obviously. Tell me more about how you balance that feed quality because uh, feed quality to keep cows milking is critical. What do you do about that side of things? So we're going in and testing our silage so that we know the ME of the pasture silage. Now we're finding that pasture silage, the highest ME pasture silage will come from the first cut, which is the first spring cut, which is the cut that's gone in recently, and that can be as high as 12 ME. Now the seed head cut, we stack on the runoffs for the wintering. That's our low ME silage. We know that from testing. That's probably around about nine, and the autumn silage can probably be around about 10 uh, without seed head. But autumn silage is lower if it's made in sort of February, March because it doesn't have the sunlight hours on it to make it. What we found last year with all the rain, the silage quality was generally lower due to the lack of uh, photosynthesis and sunlight hours on that silage. So we have a lot of 9ME silage, but we deliberately use that either for springer pre-carving stuff or very late lactation stuff, and um, we do have some of that. Everyone will have some of that on their dairy farm, but uh, certainly the seed head cut, which is the cut that's growing now, we would aim to leave that stacked as uh, winter feed. You talked about keeping cows in milk and, you know, that balance between what it costs to keep them in milk versus what it costs to feed them and not have them in milk, um, which gets me thinking about cull cows and keeping them on farm or getting them away. What's your cull cow strategy? Well, we try to stage our herd tests so that October herd test, sort of early January herd test and um, very late autumn herd test, that January herd test will really bring home the need and show the need to collar cow. 
because if you're calling, if you've got high somatics in there that aren't doing it, that's the first thing. And if you're feeding that amount of supplement, you have to put a price on that supplement. So you have to know where you're making money and not making money. So we'd sort of say if a cow's doing much under a solid, if she's an older cow with a high somatic or something else, we'd probably let her go. So the strategy comes in to coal, but we find that we don't have too many cows because you've got to understand these cows are being fed all the time. Maybe 20 cows a farm, something like that, that would coal, and we just push on with the rest. We may, after pregnancy testing, then take any coal empties out. But if they're milking, we'll probably stick with it if they're making us money. How does that change if you do find yourself dealing with drought? It just speeds it up slightly. Whereas if we've got plenty of feed around, we'd go in and look at cows under a solid, but we wouldn't be too dramatic about it. But it certainly speeds it up if you're putting in supplements at a cost. So, you know, if you didn't have a runoff and you're putting in, say, eight kilograms of PK and the rest in silage, and it's all supplement that all has a cost and uh, fed out the PK might be 40 cents and the silage might be 35 or 40. So, you really have to work out to get rid of those cows that aren't pulling their weight, so to speak. Are there times that you worry about the weather and whether your plan is watertight? And if there are, how do you manage that? If you've got a plan in place, it takes the worries away. If you haven't got a plan in place, that's where the worries come in and um, people get mentally stressed by the visual factor of the farm being all brown or there being no feed. But if you have got that situation, but you've got a strategy in place, you know what feed you've got, you know how you're going to plan it out, then it's about giving the staff the confidence to run with your strategy. Very good. Kevin, what advice do you give to farmers who find themselves in a feed pinch or aren't sure what strategy is best? So that's a retrospective uh, point you're coming from, Jack. I think a lot of it, I think, is is the planning and and kind of knowing where you sit beforehand. Because sometimes it's too late to make a lot of changes afterwards. Uh, so planning beforehand is is probably more important, I think. And that's the monitoring of that situation, knowing what your covers are in December, uh, knowing what your growth rates are, knowing what your inventory of silage is, and that sort of information. And then maybe using a slightly longer round leading into summer, using nitrogen perhaps before the dry to uh, help you do that. And then once you're in the drought, it's a matter of getting through with as many cows as you can out the other side that continue milking. So drop those passengers and don't overgraze your pastures. Trevor, you mentioned that your farms undertake farm walks every 10 days. What other tools do you use to monitor the situation? In that 10-day data, it monitors obviously pasture growth rates, somatic cell counts on farms, total dry matter, dry matter residuals, both post and pre-grazing. So you can get a lot of information out there if you look at that 10-day data. The other thing is we have a prescriptive model. So the model is what we call a hamburger model. So it's a system four model without a lot of infrastructure, minimum infrastructure, and we run that model. And why we run that model is all about profitability and EBITDA again. Because if you're paying 8% on your mortgage, like we are currently, those things that you're going to put in your business have to return greater than 8%. So it's really business focused. That's what it's about. Before we wrap, Kevin, um, tell us how Dairy and Z can support farmers with their summer planning. Well, we've got uh, some good resources on our website. 
there's a couple of pages there. One, summer preparation, and, and there's a, a good summer management plan on that, which kind of follows some of the things Trevor's talked about in terms of knowing some of those numbers, how much feed have you got available and how long it's going to be. That's a really good tool. Then I think we've got some webinars coming up. Our extension team are out there across the country uh, running groups and events and sharing ideas from farmers because, you know, there's a huge amount of farmers out there that have been through dry summers before and having the ability to network and share some of those ideas is really critical. So that's the main areas that we're working on at the Bama Jack. Thank you. We also have regional partners like yourself who are always happy to receive a phone call and chat to a farmer, help them out. Absolutely. That's such a good point. <laughs> All right. Trevor and Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Noho oromai, kakiti anō. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Talking Dairy. Check out the show notes for where to go to find out more information on summer management strategies, including catch-up recordings of our recent summer management webinars. 